Delighted, very anxious to be able to preach God's Word to you today. Don't forget we'll be launching into the Gospel of Mark together next week. So be reading, working your way through the first chapter, first couple of chapters of that book. We'll be back to a normal kind of series where we're preaching expository through uh, that text that we have been given. Uh, Anxious to preach God's Word to you today from the New Testament as well. Remember you guys, we cannot live on bread alone. We cannot do it. We need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and are hungry to be fed by that together today. If you missed last week, we spent some time on some of those words of God from Acts chapter 2, reflecting back on the essential marks of that very first church and wanting those to be the same marks of our life together here in this church community. Uh, We formally announced that Seven Mile Road is going to be multiplying, that for nine years now, we have had a single Sunday service in a single space, a single site, in a single community, um, gathered once for the Lord's Day, and just one big flock. And that's going to be multiplied out from single to triple, and we'll be moving from one to three. We will be launching a distinct church plant up in Wakefield. Uh, In 2012, that process starts now and will culminate with Sunday services and a healthy Sunday community there in 16 to 20 months. We'll also be launching a shared site. We walked through some of those ideas a few miles up the street in Melrose, hopefully the first Sunday of April. There will still be a mess of smaller communities all over the landscape just north of Boston. But these will no longer be pulling together in one mega site on Sundays. Instead, there will be three, and by God's grace, eventually more, Seven Mile Road Sunday communities. So we walked through all that for 47 and a half minutes, and we call that sermon Multiplying Wisely. This week, I get to preach to you on Multiplying Holy. Uh, I don't know what the normal sermon tone is for your normal uh, American evangelical church when a pastor steps to the pulpit to prepare the hearts of his people for an intense transition like this. I was imagining this week that it would sort of be the rah-rah kind of tone, encouraging, uplifting, invigorating, maybe some pom-poms and some cheerleading. We can do this thing, yeah, something like that. Uh, And the truth is, except for that kick, there is a time and a place for that kind of a sermon in the life of God's people. Absolutely. 1 Thessalonians sounds just like that, the whole letter. But this is not going to be the time for that, nor the place for that here this morning today. Uh, Instead today, I am going to be warning and exhorting and pleading and imploring you to pursue this transition with us in holiness. I have no doubts that we can execute this multiplication practically well, but I want you to hear from the outset of this new adventure together. What really matters, first of all, what Jesus is most interested in, is not that we do this well, but that we do this holy. We're not just another business. We're not just another nonprofit, tax-free thing. We are the church of the living God. It is not enough for us to just do things well. We have to do them holy. This has been one of the major shifts in my head in leading the life of our church together over these years because I stepped into this gig coming right out of the MBA program at the Graduate School of Management at Boston University. Um, And I absolutely love the program, but in two years and 18 courses and hundreds of lectures and case studies, we spent a grand total of one of them on ethics. And basically it was a case study in futility because half of the class would not have taken the bribe and the other half of the class would have taken the bribe, but because we had to remove the law of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God from the discussion, 
We talked in a circle. The prof kind of shrugged her shoulders, and then we all just went to lunch. What was the message of that class and a program that would be crafted in that way? The message is that things like holiness, what? Righteousness, the way that you go about your business, yeah, you want to think about it. We'll throw a case in about it. But it's really not central. It's not really what matters. Just hit your numbers well and increase your profit margin well and boost your ROI well and capitalize on market efficiencies well. These are the things that really matter. And maybe that is what it is in that kind of a program. But that will not fly here. God is much more concerned with whether we do this thing wholly than successfully. Another way I could say that is to say that success will not be primarily our ability to look back and say, hey, look, we increased our attendance and our membership numbers. There's more people here now. It will not primarily be the ability to say, hey, we really figured out how to nail this two-site church plant distinct shared thing. We're awesome. It will not be an ability to say we manage cash flow really well, although we're going to have to do that. It will not even be to say, look, there's so many Sunday communities now. None of those are bad things. But what I long for us to be able to say, whether or not we can say any of those things, whether we fail in this venture, we've got to be able to say this together. We fought hard to multiply Holy. We were holy. That season of our life together had so much opportunity for division and pride and sin, but we fought hard, and instead, man, it was marked by godliness and purity and unity and integrity. The church is the one institution where those things are central and essential. That means I have to do what my prof that day refused to do in that MBA program. That means talking with you about sin. That's what I have to do. About being aware of the sin that threatens and calling you to be committed to fighting that sin together. All right, Brent has already read some beautiful words from the Apostle Peter. He was writing to persecuted Christian communities Uh, who were facing something much more intense than we're going to face over the next 18 months in our life together. But the same temptations were there for them, temptations to pride with each other, to despair in their circumstances, to greed or division or anxiety. And Peter knows it, so he wrote that letter, some of which Brent has read. And I'll, I'll preach some of that text later on. I'm about to read from 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. It's also a letter. It's also written to a church. This church had already failed miserably in the pursuit of holiness. And there was division and disunity and pride all over the place. And the Apostle Paul, in these words, goes right after that church and corrects them. And so it will be helpful for us to hear these words as well. I'll preach from them also. God's word, so helpful and eternally true. Let's feed on it. 1 Corinthians 3, I'll read the first two paragraphs of this chapter. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I fed you not with milk. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in an only human way? For when someone says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is 
anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace. We we believe these words. We actually are your building, and we want it to be built really well. And that means really holy. So Jesus, come and by your spirit, correct us and prepare us for this season that we might be holy because you are holy. Hear, hear and answer this prayer that we've been praying together this morning. Through your word we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, last week we worked through an essential triad together about multiplying wisely. We said we're going to be about gospel word and gospel community and gospel mission. Today I want to work briefly through another essential triad together about multiplying holy. If you're a seven-miler and you're in relationships with each other, maybe in a soul care community, these themes will be very familiar to you. Our good friend Jonathan Dodson, who's planning an Acts 29 church in Austin, Texas, called Austin City Life, has done some beautiful work with this triad of ideas in his Fight Club stuff. So here it is. In this pursuit of holiness, which is the pursuit of every soul that has truly been converted, It would be really helpful to be about three things. Knowing your sin, fighting your sin, and trusting your Savior. Uh, Let me hit each of these briefly and then we'll circle back around and apply them to what we're facing together in this season. Okay, first, know your sin. Peter said it like this in the text that Brent read. We hear similar commands to this. Throughout the New Testament, you could find like 10 of them. This is how he said it. Be sober-minded, be watchful. You feel him grabbing you by the shoulders? Don't sleep on temptation and sin. The flesh and the world and the devil are always, always, always at work trying to trip you up and rob your joy and bring shame to your Lord Don't be caught off guard. Be awake, be alert, be watchful, be sober. Know what's happening. Know your sin. Okay, we get there, of course, to a knowledge of our sin by dedicating our lives, our lives to the study of two different things. The, The first is the study of the moral law of God. Boston Church has completely lost a love for the law of God that he has revealed to us in the scriptures, please, not here in the life of our church. How can we know what committing sin looks like if we don't know what God requires from us? How can we live right if, if we're not sure what right looks and feels like? How can we know what holiness is if we don't know how God has defined it? We can't. This is why we are constantly going back to the scriptures together and saying, God, to be holy, we need to know what sin is and to know who you are and what you require from us. In our home last year, maybe 18 months ago, we worked through this blue catechism book with the kids and we would read a little bit every night and talk through it. Uh, Every night we were able to do that. And in the middle of the book, this thing went on for two months working through the Ten Commands and the law of God. And I remember about the middle of the second month on a Tuesday night, I got really frustrated in there. And I was like, man, what is with this book? How much time do we need to spend in the law? Can't we move on to something else? That was a horrible, immature response for me as a father in care of the souls of my children. By God's grace, I have repented of that posture and that comment and that mindset. It is so valuable to teach our youngest children the law of God, what it looks like and feels like, what he requires, what holiness is, so that they will grow up knowing what sin is. You feel that? We all together need to study and be aware 
of what God requires of us. And the second study we need to give ourselves to is the study here of our sinful souls. We need to study our tendencies, our weaknesses, our depravities, our issues. We need to become really well acquainted with the areas in our life where the flesh and the world and the devil can get footholds and trip us up, where we personally are prone to sin because of who we are and the seasons or the situations that we are in. We need to be aware of them. We need to know them. We need to name them if we're going to be holy. Let me give you an example of what this looks like that might help. Um, as you know, not too long ago, just November and December, we had about 40 days to raise about $150,000 in cash capital to close on the second space to deal with the future life of our church. Uh, That season was wicked hard on me personally for a whole bunch of different reasons. And a few weeks into that, I found all this sin just creeping up in me in this pursuit, and it was killing me. And so I got out a pen and I sat down and I said, I'm going to name, I am going to know this sin. I need to know what is going on. And I made up a list of seven sin issues. It's always seven in the life of this church, right? Seven sin issues as clearly as I could. Let me say them to you so you can hear what I'm talking about. Know yourself and know your sin. The first one was this. I was finding myself wanting to raise $150,000 in 40 days so that I could tell people, hey, I raised $150,000 in 40 days so that they can say, oh my goodness, how did you do it? You are so awesome. You feel that sin? Second thing I wrote down, I want 100% of seven milers to give to the new building so that I can say 100% of seven milers gave to the new building. Look how great I am at leading our people. You feel that disgusting sin? Name it. Three, I want to have this building, and I want Alicia to design it perfectly with all the colors so that when people walk in, they can go, ooh, Seven Mile Road is really awesome. Look how cool this church is. And I wrote it down. Number four, my motivation for having this all work out, I want this all to work out so that I can enjoy basking in how well all the things that I lead work out. I wrote it down. Number five, I'm still going. I know, I'm a mess. I want to do this really well so that other church planters can call me and say, we have to raise money. We need to multiply the sites. We need to secure a second space. How did you do it? Because you're so awesome. All five of those probably are rooted in the sin of pride. Number six was this. I was getting angry at people who were not giving generously to the building. Whether or not I had a feel for their situation, for the posture of their heart, I was just getting pissed at my own people. And I wrote that down and I said, no way. And then seven, and this was probably the overwhelming one. I said, I am allowing my joy to be rooted in whether or not we get this space and how things are going today and this afternoon and with this phone call that I have to make rather than my joy being rooted in you. And Billy is my witness. I cried like a little baby in that corner after Joey preached on the jealousy of God because that's so sinful for me to not let God be my joy and to let anything else sneak their way in. Okay, do you guys feel what I just did? What did I just do? I named my sin. I wrote it down. I confessed it to my brothers. I knew what was going to be there to trip me up. We need to know and name our sin together. Thank God for the gospel. Okay, second thing. Fight that sin. Okay, the battle with sin comes to us on three different fronts. We fight our flesh, we fight the lies of this world, and we have an adversary, the devil, who fights against us. All three would like nothing more than to see you immature and continuing in your sin. And the scriptures call us to look them in the eye and to fight. 
Okay, we are called to fight the flesh. Remember that although when you are born again, Jesus justifies you and you are righteous in the sight of God, you are not immediately made perfect. And there becomes this tug of war inside of you for the rest of your life between holiness and sin, between old and new, between spirit and flesh. And you are called to fight that battle. Paul says it very clearly in Romans 8. Just hear this verse. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Can you feel the fight in there? Put the sins of the flesh to death. It's the same posture with the world. The world allures and it deceives and it cons you into living according to its values and its patterns. But we are called not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. And there's a fight. Paul says this so clearly in Titus. Again, just hear this verse. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions. Can you feel the fight in that word, renounce? Yes. World, I renounce you and your passions and your values and your allure. I will not buy your lies. I won't do it. Same thing with our adversary. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, Satan's doom is absolutely certain. It's just a matter of time. But it is a matter of time. This means that his time has not come yet, and so he works, and he works, and he works. The verse that Brent read, he prowls and prowls and prowls to drive God's people to sin. Peter hit this clearly in the text that Brent read. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he might devour. Now that metaphor was literally true for the people receiving this letter as they were under the hand of Roman persecutors. But Satan intends no less for your life, for your soul, for your marriage, for your family, for this church. He longs to devour us by leading us into sin. And what does Peter call us to in response? He says these words, resist him. Can you hear it in there? There's the fight. Resist him. He will attack you with despair and self-pity and pride. Resist, resist, fight. There's a host of ways that we do this. We do it by memorizing scripture together. We do it by confessing and naming our sin for each other and renouncing it. We do it by disciplining ourselves to avoid danger zones of potential sin. We do it by gathering here faithfully every work to be renewed in God's covenant grace and forgiveness. We do it by setting good habits in place. Man, whatever you do, however you do it, do it. For me, it's been helpful to actually start to get my voice and my body into this fight. If my life was a reality TV show and somebody just had this camera on me 24-7, you would see some crazy freaky stuff. That's because when I come across a situation where sin is on me, I have um, d decided sometimes literally to close my fists and to take a couple of swings and just be like, no. So Fox Sports, reading about the Celts, this Maxim ad pops up. Click here to see the NFL's top 50 hottest cheerleaders. What happens? My fists go up. No, no, I'm talking to my laptop. There is no way I'm clicking on that link. No. Why do I need to do that for my soul? I need to fight. You know when you walk into Costco, what's the very first thing that they have? All the 97-inch plasma flat screen televisions, right? For me right now, that would be sin to drop two or $3,000 of my family's money on that, then have to go get cable, take away time from things I need to be about. I'm not saying that a flat screen or cable TV is sin for you, but for me it would be. Do you know what I do after I show them my Costco card? 
I go all karate kid like this as soon as I walk in the store. Pie, I'm not walking over to those TVs. Why? I need to fight. You may see me outside of church on a Sunday after I preach, just like Rocky Balboa at the top of the steps. Why am I doing that? One of you have probably either come and told me, I just preached a great sermon or I just preached a pathetic sermon. And I am fighting my tendency to look for your applause or to be down because of your criticism when God alone is my audience. So what do I do? I go out back and I'm like, absolutely not, Matt. There is no way God is my joy. Whatever this looks like for you, listen to me. Be a fighter. Be a fighter against your sin. Okay, and lastly, trust your Savior. The danger with stopping here, if we didn't have this third piece of this triad, would be that I could be leading you to wander into self-help and self-righteousness. Ooh, I've gotten really good at this fighting thing, sin. I can go just like that, and I'm getting this done. I'm all right. Okay, that is good, but it's not good enough. We have to be teaching our hearts to trust Jesus, to stir up affections for him that are so strong and so bright and so abundant that sin just gets squeezed right out of the picture of our lives. To say, Jesus, you're better than sin. You're worthy of my obedience. You love me. You want what's best for me. I'm going to learn to trust you. This means exercising faith in the promises of God. We simply call that around here believing the gospel. Constantly, over and again, rehearsing God's grace in the gospel and apprehending it for ourselves. The greatest opponent, uh, the greatest weapon that we have against our opponents is spirit-empowered faith in the gospel I don't trust the promises of the world, of the flesh, of the devil. I trust the promises of Christ. Okay, so know your sin, fight your sin, and trust your Savior. All right, let's bring this home now to the multiplication that happens to be before us this season. We'll start with knowing and naming our sin out loud together, asking ourselves what sin is likely to to trip us up in this kind of a season with the multiplying out of the life of this church. Okay, I want to talk to our pastors first, wherever you guys are sprinkled in here. This is how Peter did it in the text that Brent read. Did you feel that? That community was under some serious pressure. And so the first place that he went was addressing the elders of the church. I'm going to copy my brother Peter's way of doing this and talk for a second first to those who serve in the office of pastor or deacon in the life of this church. We are about to face some pressures that we have never, ever endured before. I know you guys feel that coming. And I long for us to face them wholly, to face them wholly together. There will be financial pressures that we have never seen before. We've always been good with cash flow, for example, and it's going to be interesting over the next 18 months as we do this. There will be new time pressures. Each of you guys will be asked to pick up all kinds of new slack, and I know that your arms are already filled with all the slack you thought that you could squeeze in there. There will be new kinds of communication (coughs) pressures. It is hard enough in this 200-person tent-making pastor gig to be on the same page with each other. That's only going to get harder when we move from more than one service and more than one flock that needs to be cared for, that will multiply with more sites and more leaders and more decisions and more processes. That's what's coming. If I had to define one, identify one sin that threatens us, uh, it is this, that we would begin to compete with each other rather than continue to serve each other. That we would start grasping at power as things shift around rather than continuing to let go and to serve. It will be so easy for us to start to look out for ourselves and for our influence and for our ministry spheres in this gig 
and for the Sunday site that we're going to go be anchored to. And our hands could easily start to cling to what we think should be ours. Whenever there is uncertainty and, and change like this, leaders can begin to think very highly of themselves and their importance to the success of how things are going to go, of the things that they are involved with, of what they bring to the table, of what their role is, and begin to insert themselves and put themselves first and compete. This is just a version of the sin of pride that loves to grab us. We'll want to say things like, hold on, let's not forget, I am somebody around here, right, in this conversation, and my ministry is central to the health of this church, and I need to be heard, and I need to be recognized, and I better start fighting for my own, or else I'm going to lose it in this transition. And the next thing you know is our, our hands have done this, and they have closed, and pride has taken root. And we are grasping, and we will become divided, and I, I cannot take that. I long for our brotherhood to remain strong. And so for us, I want to specifically name and warn us of the sin of competition and division that's rooted in pride and what we might be bringing to the table. I'll talk about fighting that in a minute. Let me now broaden this to everybody in here, pastors and people, just like Peter did. For everybody else... My list is like seven journal pages long. I want to say these things out loud so that you hear them, so that I hear them, and we know what it is that we are going to be fighting together. So let me just name them all. Here we go. Gossip threatens big time. Uncertainty and change like this, it creates limitless opportunities for gossip. Before you know it, you can find yourself just chatting up a storm, questioning your leaders, assuming the worst about people, cutting people down. We start using that famous Boston phrase for when we gossip, not for nothing but. How many of you guys have that one in your vocabulary right after wicked? Not for nothing but. I don't want to be one to gossip but. And your words which could have had immense power for spirit unity through prayer, through encouragement, through direct and helpful questions, they start to tear us apart. They become poison. That would be sin. Favoritism threatens the holiness of our church right now in this transition. The very first person that I talked to about this whole multiplication idea, the first thing that they said to me was, Matt, you know what's going to happen. People are just going to tend to want to stick with whoever pastor is their favorite. And I went all karate kid in that conversation. No! Why? Why do we have to start saying, I don't care what the big picture vision is that they have cast for multiplication. I don't really care about mission-friendly geography. I like this preacher better than that one. I want to be at the site that this guy is anchored to. Where's Matt Moran going? Where's Kevin going? I'm going to be with Matt. That's what's important to me. I'm on his team. You feel that? And that is sin. Favoritism can creep in here. Don't let it. Vanity threatens. So we're a part of a church planning network that is excellent and strong in so many ways, but struggles very hard with this sin. When they send you $100 shirts in the mail, this is a struggle. We are susceptible to it, especially if God blesses us. Find ourselves looking in the mirror and liking what we see. Seven Mile Road is pretty awesome. We multiplied and we looked good doing it. We are just so much cooler than these other dead churches around the city of Boston. That is sin. Anxiety threatens. We have no idea how some of what needs to get done is going to get done. We are taking a lot of risks in pursuing this strategy together. There could be a lot of sleepless nights over the next 18 months if we let anxiety 
creep in. If we fail to believe the gospel, to trust in Jesus, we can sin in that way instead of bringing glory to God, worrying about ourselves. Greed threatens in this season. April could come and people could start asking, hey, why does the Melrose site get more resources than the Malden site? Why aren't we doing for the Wakefield site what we're doing for the Malden site? Why did they ask that couple to go to Wakefield? I really wanted them to be with me. This site is the original one. It should be the priority. That site is the fledgling one. That should be the priority. I don't want those guys in Melrose benefiting from my giving to my church in Malden. You feel this? You see my hands? You see the greed? That is sin. And it's coming. Laziness threatens. In a big transition like this, it is so easy for people to say, you know what? This is just too much work. I'm going to let all these other people do all the work and I'll come find a seat and I'll see how it goes. Let someone else break a sweat and figure this thing out. Not me. Despair threatens. If we allow our joy to be wrapped up in how well this goes, we could have some seriously depressed people around here in 12 to 18 months because I don't know how it's going to go. If our joy together is not rooted in the grace of God, in the gospel, we could despair and that would be sin. I could keep going. A lack of love for each other as things change could creep right in. You know what? kind of glad he's going to the other site. Nice, I got rid of her, finally. Giving opportunity for a lack of love. It's coming. It's coming. Self-pity threatens. There's some of you who will just wallow in self-pity that the church has changed and the comfort that you had has been taken away and woe is me. That is sin. And of course, with all of us, pride threatens to start finding my turf I should be having my preferences met. Why isn't my voice being followed? I deserve better. I am somebody after all. Sin. All of those things threaten us all the time, but in a transition like this, where there's going to be so much change and chaos, all of these things become magnified and can cause us to do this unholy. Know our potential for sin. Okay, now that all that junk has been named, let's talk about the fight together. And I just want to zero in today on one weapon that I long for us to put to use in fighting sin in this transition. So my kids have these Playmobil things, and like we're setting up a little war, and there's a thousand weapons to choose from, and you can just freeze because you don't know if it should be the bow or the sword or what when we're playing together. I don't want to confuse you today, so you've heard me say fight. Now I just want to give you one weapon in your hand that I want you to wield in this fight for holiness in this transition from these texts. And that is humility. Humility. We can crush 99% of the sin that threatens us in this multiplication if we will fight together for humility. This truth resounds in both of the texts that we've read together. The first was from Corinthians. Like I said, that church had already lost it and was deep in sin and unholy. They were divided because different people were identifying themselves with different leaders. And Paul says the words that I read to them, and I need us to hear them and embrace them and employ these kind of words in this fight together. He said, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And then he says this, So neither he who plants, nor he who waters, is anything, only 
God who gives the growth. Can you hear the humility in that text? What is Apollos? What is Paul? What do we want to answer? They're unbelievable studs. Paul is a brilliant Pharisee who wins every argument he ever has. Apollos is so articulate that he even puts Paul to shame. They're big shots. They're incredible. Paul says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? What's his answer? He goes for the lowest word he could find. Servants. Servants. You guys are making much of your preferred preacher. But what does he say? Paul is nothing. Apollos is nothing. The one who plants is nothing. The one who waters is nothing. Only God. Only God. We need to posture ourselves like that, to believe it, and to fight for that kind of humility. Me first, absolutely. Just this last stretch of time, twice I have had people wanting to pull me away from this posture of humility, of seeing myself as nothing. The first was that someone introduced me to someone else as the founding pastor of Seven Mile Road. They said, ooh, Matt is the founding pastor. And I hear that and I go, hmm, founding pastor? I must be somebody. I like the way that that sounds. Then someone else, about a week later, introduced me to somebody else as one of the godfathers of church planting just north of Boston. And I said, what's the matter with you? Don't ever tell anybody what you're thinking like that. So what did, I, what did I really say to myself? God, Father, I must be somebody. What needs to happen in my soul immediately? My fists need to come up? No way. The one who planted Seven Mile Road is nothing. The one who preaches 60% of the time is nothing. The one who preaches 25% of the time is nothing. The one who shepherds our soul care communities is nothing. The one who leads our band is nothing. The one who is planting in Wakefield is nothing. The one who is going to Melrose is nothing. The one who is leading in Malden is nothing. Only God. Only God. Only God. You know that this is the beauty of being a part of Jesus' church, of his redeemed people who are nothing more than saved sinners. We all come into the life of this church, and whatever you are out there, in here, it should be your joy that you are nothing and that God is everything. We've got a dude running with us who writes articles for the Harvard University Press. Do you know what his greatest joy should be in being a part of our church? That he is nothing, only God. We've got a gal in this church who blasted through physical therapy PhD and started her own practice and are launching her own specialized thing. I can't even say it right. That's how awesome it is. Do you know what the joy of her life should be when she breaks into this community? Man, that she is nothing, only God. We've got partners in firms and PhD candidates. We got dudes at MIT in this church. We've got valedictorians. We've got CEOs among us. Do you know what the joy of every one of us needs to be if we are going to be holy? That we are nothing, 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 only God. The greatest gift that I could give to you and you could give to me in this season to crush the sin of pride, of greed, of vanity, of gossip, 
of favoritism is to be united in our thinking, nothing of ourselves. That's the weapon that I want us to fight with. Let's do that. Peter says the same thing. He just uses different words. He has addressed the older leaders. Then he addressed the younger crew. Then he says these words. Let's memorize them together. I long for us to use these words in our fight against sin in this season. He says this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Pastors, parishioners, been here a while, just got here off the boat, the Constitution, some of you, staying in Malden, headed for Melrose, ending up in Wakefield, whatever. Fight sin with us by clothing yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. I'll give you an example of what this looks like. I I won't give a name because I don't want to embarrass anybody. So in this season, about 90% of you know automatically which Sunday Seven Mile Road would be the best for me to land at. About 10% of you guys, we need to shepherd you through this whole deal as we do this. And so we're following up with some of you guys, just calling to listen to your heart and saying, hey, this could go either way. Is anything stirring in you for any one of these crowds? And so I call one of you guys up, and I, I say those things, and I say, I just want to listen. And you know, you know what you say back to me? We are with you. We are with the pastors of our church. Whatever you guys need us to do, we will do it. God has placed us under your authority. You tell us, and we will go. I hang up the phone, and I just start crying. I know you guys. I have pastored you for nine years. I know what pride looks like, and it's ugly. But humility is beautiful, and it's holy. And just when I thought I had composed myself, I caught up with one of our pastors. And I say, I just had the sickest conversation. I called to listen, and the air went dead because this guy is so humble. And I start crying on the phone again. If we ever had that posture to each other, who, who am I to say where I should go? I am nothing. God is everything. How can I serve The flesh would die. The world would be confounded. Satan would be frustrated and we would have multiplied holy. Would you please fight with me? Take up the weapon of humility. I am nothing. God is everything. How can I serve? And then the last thing, of course, clothing ourselves with humility is not just about fighting sin, but it comes with this beautiful promise. Peter's call to clothe ourselves with humility comes with a gospel kind of promise that I need us to cling through. Remember our third thing. Let's be a people who believe the gospel and trust our Savior. Listen to these words. Let's memorize this whole thing, not just the first part. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Will you believe that promise with me? Let's believe it. Is it an understatement to say that we are in desperate need of some grace in this season together? Right? You're just praying like crazy, going, God, if you don't pour out your spirit and give us grace, it's going to be a mess. God steps to us and says, if you clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward each other, I promise I will give grace to you. Let's trust Jesus to be faithful to that gospel promise to give us grace. I will shake the cheerleading pom-poms all day. I hope that you are super excited that God in his grace has allowed you to be a part of this church community. 
that you are super excited of what he could do by his spirit in the life of this little church over the next 10, 20, 50 years together. That you are anxious to know what sin could trip us up, to fight that sin and to trust our Savior. Listen to me. If we do this proud, competing, gossiping, grasping, greedy, vain, he will oppose our work. He will. But if we fight to do this, humble, he will give us grace. Let's ask him for that grace together. Father, I thank you that in your grace you've already given us people who have been truly converted by you and who are so broken that they've come to see reality, that they are nothing, that God is everything. And so pride is absent. Jesus, we know that our greatest ambition here is not just to do this well, but to do this holy. Would you give us the desire to fight sin? Would you give us the desire to clothe ourselves, all of us, with humility toward each other? That we would be the first to say, I am nothing. I am simply a servant. God is everything. Would you please light up just north of Boston, not because we preach good, not because we have multiple sites, not because we're a church-planting church, but light up this city because we're holy, because we're humble. Forgive our sins. Help us to fight them. Help us to trust our Savior. Give us your grace as we humble ourselves. Please come and make us Holy is our prayer. Don't let us waver from it. I pray these things in the strong name of the humble one, Jesus the Christ, and by the power of his spirit. Answer, answer, amen.